Yeah. You yeah. put your roses and stuff inside oh, and you've roses. got like yes. night we found. Yeah. It's highly embossed and it's got a four digit phone number to call. How I mean, how long has it been since you've had a four digit phone number? Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places a dive, and scuba to news. Obsessed episode 296 recorded live September 1st, 2016. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we are smack dab in the middle of great diving season. Sometimes you see that calendar hitting the September 1st mark and you think that it's all going downhill, but we've got some beautiful weather here. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. I'm glad to be here. And coming in from the great northern part of the state, or actually right between the upper peninsula and the lower peninsula, we have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? I'm doing excellent, Aaron. Yourself? I'm doing great. And then in the background there, he's being chauffeured around by Jim Schultz, so you might hear some of Jim Jimism coming in through. Well, Jim can probably say hi. He can't quite hear us, but he knows we're talking about him. Hey! So there we go. So before we get started on the news, I, you're you're up there. Are you in Sheboygan right now, or? Actually, we're up in the UP right now. Um, we've been we, we were staying in Sheboygan, but we decided to take a. A day trip turned into a weekend trip, do some diving up on Lake Superior. Oh, excellent. Now, did you time it to where you're going to be able to hit all three Great Lakes in the same day? or? Um, you know, I think you're expecting a bit much of us. <laughs> for, uh, we'd be doing good to hit two. Uh, no, we just uh, we planned on hitting the uh, Vienna this morning. Didn't quite work out so well. We found that the uh, weather forecasts are not quite as reliable up here as they are down there. And uh, ended up being blown off a lake over there in uh, Whitefish Point area. We know that it's pretty sheltered over in Munising area, so we headed over there to uh, dive around uh, Grand Island. We uh, dove the Smith Moor and the Bermuda today. Now, I had a couple of really good dives. The visibility was not quite what we expected for Lake Superior, but uh, still, you know, it, was, it was good dives, good people. Now, when you say Lake Superior, are you in the like a, a, a channel coming off of Lake Superior, or is it just... Um, well, what you have is, uh, Munising is on the shore of Lake Superior, kind of like, uh, oh, just to the east of the Keweenaw Peninsula. And you have this great big island in front of Munising called Grand Island. And that works as a huge natural breakwater to keep the uh, storms out of that area in, in front of Munising. Now, despite that great natural breakwater, you still have a number of ships that went down in that area. And it, it makes a very nice place to die. You know, um, what's there is overall quite well protected and in decent shape. Um, say we, uh, the Bermuda is truly one of a kind. Um, it was uh, sunk in the 1870s and then was salvaged shortly after. But when they salvaged it, they just pulled the, they just pulled the masts and the cargo out of it, and then they resunk it in the bay in Grand Island, as a uh, Murray Bay off of Grand Island. But what ends up being is it's almost like it's landlocked. I mean, even though it's Lake Superior, it's completely enclosed, free of storm and ice damage. So in 30 feet of water, you have a completely intact hull Civil War era schooner. Very cool, easy dive. So 
I've, I've heard a lot of good things. That's on my short list of uh, places that I need to get in the water and visit. Oh, you've got to get up here, Darren. You've got to get up here. And I was going to try, but I already had a couple commitments for this weekend. Mm-hmm. I think next year I should be able to. My daughter does a high school band, and they have meets or practices or competitions just about every weekend, and then my son's in town. Between the two of them, it's hard to find any weekends this time of year that will be unspoken for. But there's plenty of diving down here. Like, Mac, you got in the water this week? Yep, yep. Okay. Uh, let's see. We, we need to do a make good. Uh, we've got our Patreon supporters. So if you are enjoying the show at all, we encourage you to go to Patreon. So you can follow the links at our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. And those links will take you, there's some links there to Patreon, to the Scuba Obsessed page. And we are using that to help fund the, our program. We are a listener-supported program. Very little advertising money comes to us, uh, mostly just through Google, which is remarkably small. It doesn't even cover a quarter of the hosting, to host the website and the content. And last week, we we were so busy on time, we had our interview, and it took up a lot of space, so we forgot to give a shout-out to Vanessa and Scott. So special thank you to Vanessa Humiak and Scott Hulbert, who are our Patreon supporters, and we'll give them mention out at the end of the show due to their level of support that they're giving us on Patreon. We're also kicking off something new this, this month. September, we're trying to hit that first goal, which is $300 a month. And that will enable us to upgrade the gear that many of us use, but most especially Mac. Where Mac's the first one on our list. We'll be getting a, a new microphone and some other ancillary equipment for audio quality. So we'll be getting Mac set up, and and we're getting there. We're we're got a good pace. I thank everybody who's donated the last couple months. And uh, we thought we'd do something different in September. Is that if you donate to in September and it's at a, a high enough level, we have some gifts that you'll be able to select from. So if you've heard us talk about different things we find in the river, we put together some of the nicer examples of them, and we've got them for a Patreon donation. So what we've done is we've assigned a value. So an example here is we've got three Hutchie bottles. Which Hutchie bottles? Matt, can you explain what a Hutchie is? Well, the Hutchie bottle is called such because of the stopper. It's a unique stopper arrangement on the bottle. The Hutchies that we're normally looking at here are all pre-1920s, <clears throat> and some of them are actually 1800s, 1890s, 1895. Uh, they're very thick glass. Uh, most of the ones we're going to be looking at will be embossed and have an intact stopper that goes with it. So the uh, the the Hutchie, was that, that's after Crocs, but before they did uh, bottle tops? Correct. That's before the crown top. Crown top. So crown top is like what we had in the 70s and before on top of glass soda bottles. Well, crown tops actually started in about 1932 with the automatic machines. Uh, but uh, even some of the 1930s with the crown tops, you will get that are glass etched and embossed like what we will also have available for people. They're still unique because you just don't find them anymore. So if you want to see, the, uh, we've got three Hutchies up there, different examples, and they're all the same. What we're doing is we're signing a Patreon value. So we've given them Patreon value of $60. So what that means is that in the course, if you make a donation that within six months uh, accumulates the $60 in value, then you could select one of the Hutchies. What you need to do is when you uh, go to Patreon, you could select the plan that we've got assigned that goes with them, or you could select another plan, lower or higher, as long as it gets that $60 in uh, six months then you could select that. So you need to let us know because they're going to be first come, first serve because these are one-of-a-kind item. We've got three Hutchies. The first one uh, has a slight embossed. It says uh, uh, THOS Burger. So that I think that's abbreviation for Thomas Burger, South Bend, Indiana. 
And then uh, we have a, a second one, a uh, little bit different embossed. That one says Jacob Sapen, S-P-A-H-N, Laporte, Indiana, embossed on it. And the other one just has a disc. Now, I'm assuming, Mac, that that disc, when it's embossed, they might have had a paper label on it? Yes, they had a paper label on it because that was before silkscreen. Mm-hmm. All these have some wear on them. They've been, they've been in the bottom of the river. They're a little bit sand and scuff. Uh, we haven't done a lot to clean the inside because to clean the inside, you'd also break down that stop that's in the bottle. One bottle has two stoppers and i have no idea how that happened either somebody pushed two stoppers in or it was a defect production i'm guessing it's probably two put each have their stoppers you go and select them and then also through the course of september as mac alluded to we'll be adding other bottles we have some embossed pop bottles knee high we have a couple pepsis a coke and those will be assigned different values so uh they're just our way of saying thanks when you donate so we're hopefully going to get to that first milestone goal by the end of september and we appreciate everybody's already donated if you have already donated you can apply those amounts that you've already given to the program and combine them with your current donations and if they reach that 60 dollars value you could claim one of these you just have to drop us a line and let us know that's your intent and we'll 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 start marking them off, first come, first serve. And uh, we probably got a couple dozen bottles, so we'll be putting four or five up each week. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. Start up and follow up. If you remember, we had the, is that Manalus shipwreck? Is that how we pronounce that? It's in Canadian waters. People concerned that there's a little bit of oil being leaked, so they've uh, got divers on it. A company out of Florida got $5 million to assess the wreck. Now, Mac, is that normal for a wreck like this for commercial divers? I wasn't with you guys when you were talking about this last week, so I'm I'm going to take a look at it here. Well, this is one uh, I don't, we didn't, last week we didn't get to a lot of news. This one's probably from about three or four weeks ago. This is the one where the people had reported that there was sheens of oil on the surface, and it seems like they They've awarded a contract to uh, a salvage company to analyze it. They uh, Did they say how deep it is? They don't, but I'm guessing by the light, I'm, it's got to be less than 100 feet. Well, yeah, but this is saltwater too, so... Oh, is this saltwater? So this is the Manalisal shipwreck uh, near Change Islands in Notre Dame Bay are being protected by several Canadian Coast Guard pollution response vessels this week. They said it's highly, highly, highly unlikely, but in the case oil does come to the surface, we're ready, Suzanne Miller, incident commander with the Canadian Coast Guard. Representatives from the Coast Guard, Transport Canada, Environmental Canada, and several private contractors established a 200-meter safety zone around the Manalus L to protect divers and watch any leaking oil. We have two components. We have the incident command post set up in Twillingate, as well as the large on-water component here, said Miller. Taking the plunge, a $5 million contract is awarded earlier this summer to Florida-based company Resolve Marine Group to dive down to the Manalus L and assess the ship's leaking hull. Divers are drilling, collecting samples, and installing plugs on various points of the hull. They're assessing just how much fuel is on board and where it's located. Coast Guard ship holds 500 group to make five dives per day. Well, it takes about 10 minutes to reach the hull. Divers can only stay down 30 minutes. When they reach the surface, they must spend an hour in a decompression tank. Pollution response vessel makes the regular site visit through the day with aerial surveillance flights. Observer head. Crews also regularly monitor the ship's coffer dam, a device to catch the leaking oil. It's better to have it not need it than to need it and not have it. Have it, says Bruce English, Canadian Coast Guard. It's an opportunity to crane root crews, work together. While we're here and practice these response tattoos or anything else that involved, and looking, they, they looking at the photos. Did you? There's a photo, and I also have a video. No, and it is very clear. I'm surprised. I was expecting it. I may be mixing this up with another wreck because I was thinking this was in Erie, but I, now I don't think it is. Yeah, I wish I'd get better geography here. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking you know, it could be, be in Canada. It could be, you know, salt. I'm thinking it's salt water. 
gets away with all these change islands in Notre Dame Bay. Quick Google of them. Yeah, well, we're trying to work on getting our uh, running lights working properly here on the trailer. We're having some, uh, you know, this is, it's all part of diving. Yeah, diving, a boat, all that stuff, it all goes together. So Change Islands, I'm on the website, Newfoundland and Labrador. So this is, this is, yeah, this isn't saltwater, Notre Dame Bay. Well, I'm still trying to figure out how deep they are. If, they're on, if you can only work a half hour and you got an hour deco. Is that just being safe? I'm just looking at how bright that is, unless they really color corrected it. I, of course, if it is that clear, maybe it is. So maybe it's deeper. Yeah, I was, I was thinking the same thing, but I didn't know if maybe there was, if they just did the deco as a, a safety. Cause an hour is really not a lot. They're, de- they're certainly not saturating. Well, I don't know. An hour of deco is substantial. Uh, you know, if we're talking a half an hour bottom time, I, I'm not a tech diver. I don't have the, the charts measured, known in my head, but, uh, if they're talking an hour of deco, that's substantial depth for half an hour bottom time. Yeah, Dave, Dave's in the chat room, Dave Tom. And he says it's a North Atlantic area. I think I must be mixing this up with another article, something else. There's, there's a video there. So if you watch the video, you can see. And the video does not make these divers look graceful. So I, I'm thinking that somebody lost a bet and they edited it. And then they just said, hey, I'm going to I'm going to make it look. Don't know what you're doing. Well, I know they're trying to what? Uh, salvage that 462 tons of bunker fuel and 60 tons of diesel. Because it looks like, and you can see in a couple of the photos and in the video, that they've got plugs. So it looks like they've either, there's either holes already there and they've plugged them up, or they're drilling a hole and placing a plug in it, just trying to figure out where the, you know, how the oil's positioned in the vessel. Well, they've also got a coffin dam around it. Yeah, I, I was, yeah, I, I, like they said, I guess it's, they're just doing it to make sure that they're overly protective. And then we have an article out of Macclesfield. Taking this as a UK town name, divers are making a splash with a weight loss challenge. Members of the East Cheshire Subaquatics Club plan to lose more than 20 stones between them. A group of scuba divers swapping their fins and trainers for charity weight loss challenge. The 13-member team from East Cheshire Subaquatic Club on Bank Street in, um, it says Macclesfield, M-A-C-C-L-E-S Field, aimed to lose a combined 130 kilograms over uh, three months, around the same weight as a female bull shark or 17 scuba diving weight belts. Well, they're not factoring in my weight belt. Among them are 72-year-old uh, Pressbury, granddad of five, Dave Sear, new mom, Gemma Jones, 35, from Canucksford, and Chelsford Scout Group leader, Joe Adshead, 51. Group will raise 4,000 pounds for a new club dive boat and donate the rest of the Royal National Lifebo- Lifeboat Institute. They've already raised 1,500 pounds and shed 15 kilograms with the help of DW sports fitness trainer Ben Morris. The club will hold a public way in a small annual ball in October. Well, a stone is 14 pounds. Or, or, or about what most people eat during lunch. 14 pounds? <laughs> it may cost you 14 pounds, but I don't think they're uh, going to yeah. be high weight. Yeah, that's, I, I get those mixed. Yeah, stones, it, it, it doesn't make it, make it sound like you're losing a lot. But you break it up. That's quite a bit. I, I, that's an interesting idea for a fundraiser. It's something that's beneficial. We all need good condition diving. If you go to their uh, crowdfunding uh, page, justgiving.com, see you've got some funds coming in there. It must have money coming in a different way because here it's only showing them 90 pounds on that website. 57 days ago. Uh, we have scuba divers discover human bones in a voodoo, 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 a voodoo ritual off the Spanish coast. A group of scuba divers set off to explore the waters in eastern Spain 
where they're likely expecting to see a few fish, but they end up making an unexpected discovery. Human bones and other items be believed to be left over from a voodoo-type ritual. The divers from a local dive center made the first discovery on Saturday where they spotted what appeared to be a human skeleton wrapped in a sheet with items used in uh, Santeria, a religion popular in Cuba which combines Christianity with West African cult practices. Such practices often involve animal sacrifice. We were doing a course in the area of Rico Plena, Behind the rock and saw basically we thought was a garbage bag. I went down for it, and as I approached, I saw a knotted sheet. I opened it up a little and saw a doll. I went up and gave it to the boss and continued diving, said Christian instructor at the La Bessa Diving Center, according to El Paris. After revealing the discovery, several diving teams from the Guardia Civil went underwater, explored the same area in the night dive, and that's when they stumbled upon a second package which contained what appeared to be human bones and items used in a santeria, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that as well. Police have so far identified a bowl of feather leaves, twigs, with names scratched onto them, as well as dolls, the local reported. The third package was found by scuba divers the same area on Monday, but has not yet been retrieved from the water. A forensic examination the first package suggests humans' bones had been buried in earth between 30 and 40 years before being dug up and recently thrown into the sea. Uh, they are investigating whether the skeleton may have been removed from a cemetery and used in a ritual. They've been called in experts in the religion to assess. Dario informed newspaper reporter. Three packages were found in the Mediterranean Sea uh, near a large rock stand at the end of the seaside town of Calepi. The rock is a popular site for people to spread ashes of their deceased loved ones. So you never know what you're going to find. That little bag might not be exactly what you think it is. That's the excitement of uh, especially river diving is what might you find. Yes, and uh, I, th- I think I've heard stories of other human remains being found before. Yes, you have. And while you're down there cleaning up, you can do what this other family does, and they're, they've sponsored a Stockton Lake cleanup. Dave and Patty Camp have uh, seen it all during their cleanup dives at Stockton Lake. They're members of the Kansas City Frogman Dive Club, whose members will be scouring the bottom and moving trash and debris from a public swimming area during the 20th annual Stockton Lake cleanup on September 10th. While divers clean up beneath the waves, dozens of other volunteers will help rid the shore of trash and debris. Stockton Lake is a pretty blue color, but it's not quite like diving the Bahamas, the camp's note. We really don't have any visibility, maybe six inches to two feet, Patty Camp said. When you pull something off from the bomb there's a huge puff of silt it's fascinating what you find though sometimes it's pretty gross used diapers fall into the gross category but camps have also pulled out old clothing barbed wire tires sunglasses money fishing poles lures and occasional cell phone from the lake we dove in a boat ramp one year where we found a car engine distributor spark plugs and a six-pack of beer that was unopened dave camp said there's also before pull tabs were outlawed the bottom shimmered with pull tabs people had tossed the goal of dive is to make sure the lake safer make the lake safer and cleaner for swimmers and shoreline users but there's also a safety aspect both fish and wildlife and divers during one cleanup i got tangled in so much old fishing line i had to be cut out uh, according to dave camp and I'm the one who cut him out, said Petty Camp. The annual cleanup is a joint effort by the U.S. Army, Orange, Army Corps of Engineers, Missouri Stream Team, National Public, Lands Day, and the Kansas City Frogmen Dive Club, along with numerous local volunteer groups. The event will begin at 8 a.m. on September 10th. Lunch and prize will be provided noon to volunteers following the event. So that's a good program. It's nice to see people getting out there and clean up. Now, we have a our own ecological dive coming up. I think, Mac, when, when's that one? That one is... Uh, I think Jim would be able to talk about that better than I, but I think it's October the 1st, I think is what they initially said. Okay. It's on a Saturday. Do we October have a location 1st. for that? 
I believe it's going to be in Niles, and the area which it's going to encompass, I don't think it had been totally defined yet, okay. but it's probably going to be down from the French paper dam all the way down to the railroad. So we, we need to probably start <laughs> getting getting going and getting people lined up, because it'd be nice. I think for every diver, it'd be nice to have some floor, some shore support for it. Because I think well, if we're doing any serious work, it'll take both. Yeah. Now, are, are we planning on doing that like we've done in the pawpaw where... It's a competition, or are we just all out as much as we can get out of the water? I really haven't had any part in that again, so I know Jim and Marybeth have been doing some work with it, so he'd be better able to talk about it than I would. Yeah, if they maybe when they if they they come back on, we'll we'll bug them a little bit later. Then we have the Burmese government is encouraging the population to save Japanese World War II shipwrecks, or I said Burmese, it's Borneo. Professional Association of Diving Instructor, the instructors, instructor Ernest Teo is saying an SOS to state governments put a stop to unlawful salvaging of three Japanese World War II shipwrecks located 13 nautical miles southeast of San Tubong, the S-A-N-T-U-B-O-N-G. They're considered living museum. He's appealing to members of the public to assist the government in ensuring that there are three historic sites not to be further exploited by unscrupulous individuals for quick gain. According to him, one of the three wrecks called the Sad Girl was completely destroyed sometime last March by illegal metal salvager. Of the remaining two wrecks, the Katori Maru has been damaged and only the Emu also left attack. He claimed that there are three shipwrecks that have been recognized as the best wrecks in the whole country, and thus he hoped that all possible efforts would be made to safeguard these sites for future generations. The wreck could be considered our living museums as these ships were made before World War II. Besides their historical heritage, it's also vital to keep them as well as our priceless treasures intact to attract tourists. That's pretty. That's a pretty hefty salvage operation. If you you, you see the the photos in the post, those are aren't small wrecks. You have to have some pretty serious gear, I would think, to salvage one of these. I would think so. You can clamshell them or bring them. Up. But again, I have I disagree with this aspect of it, so I'm I'm not the one to talk on that one. <laughs> Those ships have been down there for how many years? Well, and I can understand if if you if know as well as I do, they're great to dive on, right. but they're not going to stay there forever. They're going to deteriorate. They're going to be totally encrusted. They're not going to look like ships in a hundred years or so. Well, it's a, it's a case of me these these countries where they don't have clear defined laws or the laws that they have they're not enforced. So uh, if you're letting these be salvaged, then I mean that's that's what you're doing. I mean they they you, one aspect you could look at them as they are garbage and just need to be they could be brought up or salvaged, but they should make a decision one way or the other. Uh, it was interesting when I looking at the comment in there they had uh, they contract they contacted one of the local politicians. He said, "Oh, it's outside my jurisdiction. We only claim ten miles in for shore, so these wrecks are outside that uh, coastal boundary, which they say goes to the national government." And also thinking that's probably a political hotspot. Well, the Katoro Maru is 50 kilometers from the mainland. That's not close. Uh, let me see the other one here. The references divers like to go to them. They do have fish. I mean, it's going to. You've got a shipwreck. You've got a habitat. You're going to have fish. And divers are going to go there. But if people, and if it's outside of the limits of the of the uh, governmental agencies, it's salvaged. Well, and that's why the people are going to take it apart for the metal. Because if you, if you look at the one that they've they've salvaged, it's just a hull at this point. The other one is in a little bit better condition, but it's it's broken down quite a bit. But if they're not doing anything with them, then go ahead, let somebody salvage them. That's... But it's like we said, how do you protect them from the elements, and that's what's going to destroy them? But if you're, you have to look at what is going to be linked. Uh, if you, you know, what, what's the bigger value that you're going to get 
are you going to get more value out of the tourism? Uh, you could bring people and do the diving, or are you going to get more value out of the scrap metal from the wrecks being down there? Well, true. I mean, that's his, his, his aspect, I believe, says Tio said diving at these sites is a high-end tourism product that can only be, bring in big bucks to the state. It's always a matter of what can I make the most money at? It's not because it's good for you, good for me. It's because the state can make a buck out of it. And he happens to be going to make a buck out of it too because he'll okay. take dive groups out to it. So he's making money off of it. Yeah, and that's, that's his incentive. Right. Then we have an article, Deep Sea Ecosystem Still Under Threat Despite UN Protection. This is an article from the New Scientist. And what kind of protection are they offering? Well, what they're what they're doing is they're saying that there's been a lot of uh, awareness and and programs put in place. Is that me or is that you? So what? You did you hear that? What what? Well, the 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 uh, ad monsters <laughs> coming in and invading. Uh, the UN General Assembly is meeting in New York to assess progress at implementing resolution passed since 2004 to stop deep sea fishing fleets from damaging C4 ecosystem. The UN resolutions were intended to protect the high seas, vast swath of oceans that fall outside of national control and to be implemented by international fishery organizations. But while some progress has been made, a new study finds that many rich ecosystems in the seabed are still under threat from trawling. Vast areas of the ocean remain unprotected, said Matthew Giani. One of the study's authors, based on the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition, a Dutch-based NGO set up in 2004 by Greenpeace, WWF, and other others to monitor progress in the UN resolution, a coastal report finds that while some progress has been made, there are still vast areas that aren't getting protection they deserve. Uh, it said unprotected coral among the richest places in the world for cold water corals, the south or southwest Rockall Bank and southern Hatton Bank of the Atlantic Ocean west of Scotland, yet they remain unprotected despite recommendations from scientists at the International Council for the Exploration. Further south, Josephine Seamount between Maldiria and Portugal is a marine protected area. It has a highly incident rate of rare, previously unknown species as well as commercial fish, according to, the, to an atlas prepared by the Marine Conservation Institute, but dispute over whether it's within Portugal's waters means it remains unpoliced, says Guiani. Scientist advisors for Northwest Atlantic Fishery Organization says more than a third of the sponges and corals and almost two-thirds of sea pens remain at risk from bottom trawlers in the Great Banks Flemish Cap, two important fishing grounds outside of Canadian waters because organization continues to allow fishing there. Only about 6% of their national waters in the Grand Bank and Flemish Cap, shallower than 2,000 meters depth, have been closed to bottom fishing. There's no better place in the South Atlantic under European Union regulations. EU fleets no longer trawl most of the Patagonian shelf off Argentina, another rich fishing ground, but other nations that fish this are yet to follow suit. The Southwest Pacific New Zealand fishers continue to catch orange ruffy and other fish from the Louisville Ridge, a long change undersea mountains, rich biodiversity, including rare bioluminescent bamboo coral, and recently found by the Malcolm Clark New Zealand National Institute of Water and Atmospheric. So what they're talking about, uh, and, and the reason why this article got published is that they're trying to lobby before the UN meets, which based on when this article is, it's that meeting has already happened. But what they're showing is these bottom trawlers, which are big, almost like bulldozer blades that are dragged along the bottom. And then they have nets above them, and they're doing bottom fishing. <coughs> so that's what they're getting at. Uh, I mean, it's it's a, it's a challenge that you have to – I don't know if there's a, a remedy for. Uh, it's all based on demand, and there's plenty of demand because there's people who are hungry who want fish, and there's people who want to do it inexpensively, and this is about the cheapest way you can do it. Well, as soon as we reduce the population of the world to about $1 billion, we won't have the issue. It's true. Anytime I see Greenpeace or WWF, I don't get too concerned, but that's just me. That's the uh, World Wildlife Fund, by the way. 
Yeah, World Wildlife Fund. The, one, the ones that sued the World Wrestling Federation because they thought people might get them confused. <laughs> and besides, it's also a UN resolution. They've got no teeth. No, no. Well, what they've done is they're giving the teeth to the exact groups who have no incentive to really fix because the idea is that you have these coalitions of people who are harvesting the fish so you would think that they would have an interest in making sure that the fishing is sustainable uh, but in reality they're headed up by the same groups who are making all the money so not sure how that's going to work and then like you said the UN really has no teeth in this and neither does the European Union they can try to work within their own you know the people who they control but then the other nations who don't give a rat's whatever for the UE, they've got their fish to the heart's content. And actually, it's better for them because then they have less competition. Yeah. Well, and that's the same problem to go off topic is of shark finning. Or whale hunting. Yeah, because what most of us in the West don't realize is that there's a belief uh, in that side of the world that sharks are eating the fish that they want to eat. So they consider sharks a top predator. And by limiting the sharks, they eliminate the competition for the for the fish that they want to catch. So a lot of fishermen over there encourage shark finning for that particular reason. It's not it's becoming unpopular. So you're you're seeing pressure on uh, you know higher visibility restaurants, international chains to stop uh, serving it. But there's enough of a demand uh, that it's going to continue. And we've got Hoffa University predicts arrival of jellyfish in Israel using sea temperature and lunar cycle. Kind of the gist of this article is that they're saying that if you understand the conditions of the water and what they are and what causes jellyfish to come in, you're going to be able to predict the jellyfish coming in. They said that uh, large swarms of jellyfish reach Israel's coast when the sea's uh, temperature ranges between 28.2 and 30 degrees Celsius and during the full moon, according to a new study from the Department of Natural Resource and Environmental Management of Hafa University. Jellyfish interfaces with public system and can injure and even kill swimmers. Jellyfish destroy fishing nets poison and crush captured fish consume fish eggs and young fish jellyfish can clog cooling equipment thus disabling power plants jellyfish caused the cascading blackout in philippines in 1999 and damaged the diablo canyon power plant in california in 2008 clogging can also stop salination plants ship engine the university study revealed for the first time a link between sea temperatures and lunar cycle and arrival of swarms along the coast of israel it's possible that individual jellyfish will also reach under different conditions but we discovered that the most significant swarms arrive under the above condition, proof being that such periods, the number of blockages in the electric company cooling facilities with dead jellyfish have been incorporated greater than during other periods of the year. And they and they show what I'm assuming is the uh, one of the bays coming in there at the cooling plant. Oh, it says a container full of jellyfish. What can you do with jellyfish? Well, you know what they're saying about they eat this, they do that. That's true. That's how they live. I think the whole issue is, like you said before, is if they can predict when the heaviest infestation is going to be, those areas that suck water in for cooling and whatever can make some kind of uh, containment device to help minimize their intrusion and enter the cooling systems. Yeah. Well, what, what jellyfish are is they really, they, they uh, almost like an algae bloom. There's certain conditions for when they spawn and produce that happen. And when they do, it's huge swarms of them, say, so have huge amounts. You're going to have uh, coastal conditions like they've identified here with the lunar and uh, water temperatures. But you also have currents that are coming in indicating when they would be in there. 
And it's just something that you've got to get used to and deal with. We we had an article a couple of years back about somebody who had developed a, a machine that would uh, take care of the jellyfish. I think take care is the polite way of saying it. It would uh, run them through a, kind of a, a grinder or a, a sucker, collect them. But what would you do with them? Would you just use them? Would you then use them as fertilizer? <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah, because here they're, here they're saying that they can predict it, but they're not. And they say all the problems. But they're, so, okay, now you predict it. What are you going to do? You're going to put out fishing nets and collect them up? Well, did you know that large coastal jellyfish only live two to six months, from which they grow from a millimeter to two to many centimeters in diameter? Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of how long they live. I was just looking at the lifespan. Isn't there something that eats them? They don't say in this article. Well, let's see. Other species of jellyfish are the most common and important jellyfish predator. The other ones include tuna, shark, swordfish, sea turtles, and one species of Pacific salmon. There you go. Not all bad. Then we have divers who are also taking care of uh, something else they consider to be a menace, uh, eradicating the crown of thorn starfish. Scuba divers eradicate storm of uh, crown of thorn starfish Pacific Island of coral reefs one at a time. What we are seeing a lot of dead coral, a lot of white coral, which is not actually bleaching. Bleaching is live coral, but predated coral is stripped of all tissue. Back to the bare limestone skeleton. This is according to dive master Dave Moss, who's uh, passionate about marine conservation. It's almost like a wall of them marching along the reef. Dave Moss worked with scientists at James Cook University and other researchers in Bali to do a bit of tackling on the problem. Scientists discovered low doses of vinegar injected in the arms of the crown of thorn. Starfish can kill the individual animals. We take a pack of syringes full of vinegar, household vinegar, which is 5% acidic acid, and inject it into the polian vessels. Vesicles? Polian? P-O-L-I-A-N B-E-S-I-C-L-E-S. That's the cross of sea star, which distribute the water through the hydrovascular system of the animal and kills it. Within 24 to 48 hours the sea star should have died and won't have impact on the environment around it then fish can eat so what we do is we hope to, to do is remove as many of the crown of thorns as we can but also leave them there we're hoping that other fish will use them as a food source we won't need to continue this action so is that like training them to eat them uh, <laughs> mr moss said they were seeing positive results and hope that over time slow growing corals would recover but he conceded killing individual starfish is not going to save a coral reef especially the high water temperature associated with climate change a loss of crown of thorns predators due to overfishing and poor water quality were resulting in bigger numbers of the coral bleaching and crown of thorns starfish damage may look similar but Mr. Moss said they were different, which we covered at the beginning, repeating themselves. It says, historically, a number of recorded crown of thorn starfish plagues and reefs have recovered, but the frequency is increasing and regeneration is slow. I don't, I don't have much experience with it, but I have seen articles where they talk about clearing them. I'd seen that for there's a while there where they were actually collecting them, but it seems like the last couple of years they've come across doing these injections. Well, there's a, a species of pufferfish and two triggerfish have been observed to feed on the crown of thorns. A, the Triton's trumpet is a known predator of the starfish range. The small painted shrimp is also a general predator of starfish. So it sounds almost like uh, the problem you're having with our particular type of fish there in Florida and all those areas? Yeah, a little bit. It does sound a little reminiscent of lionfish issue. I mean, you've had them. They've been there, but now they're overextending themselves in certain areas because they don't have any predators. And the other aspect is what? The water warming has um, made them be able to migrate better? Yeah, it's not a good thing. Now, here's a little bright spot. Next article. This one is talking about the Great Barrier Reef, which there's been a lot of articles talking about the bleaching and the destruction. And you would think that the whole reef is completely dead by what is being reported in the news. Researchers have been analyzing laser data from the Royal Australian Navy discovered that there's a vast reef behind the familiar Great Barrier Reef. Images have revealed that great fields of unusually 
donut-shaped circular mounds, each 200 to 300 meters across, up to 10 meters deep at the center. James Cook University, University of Sydney, Queensland University of Technology, scientists working with JCU's Dr. Robin Beeman and were stunned by the results of the LIDAR-equipped aircraft. We've known about these geological structures in the northern Great Barrier Reef since the 70s and 80s, but never before has the true nature of their shape and size and vast scale been revealed. Dr. Beerman said that's astounding revelation. The deeper seafloor behind the familiar coral reef amazed us. The fields of circular donut-shaped rings of the Halamida bioherms, a large reef-like geological structures formed by the growth of uh, Halamida, a common green algae composed of living calcified segments. These small, these form small limestone flakes on death, looking much like white cornflakes. Over time, these flakes build up in the large reef-like mounds or bioherms. Queensland's University of Technology, uh, Marty McNeil, lead author of the new research paper, said their extent is vast. We've now mapped over 6,000 square kilometers. So what this is showing us is how uh, some of these structures would that probably the reef itself is built on are formed out of other creatures doing similar activity. So a little good news there. Did you skip one, by the way? Did I? The colorful reef off Tasmania? I, I, I'm feeling like there should be one. Oh, yes. Yeah, because I was reading it while you were doing this, and I'm trying to track you and say, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying something else. Well, actually, that, this one goes good because it almost makes me think of, uh, uh, so we're talking about outside the Great Barrier Reef. You've got this reef. And then here's some uh, divers. This one's out of Australia. Deep sea divers provide a first close-up look at a colorful reef off Tasmania's east coast. Uh, deep sea uh, divers explored a reef off uh, by Chino in the Facinet Commonwealth Marine Reserve, capturing footage of the close-up look at marine life about 70 meters under the surface. It's known to fishermen as Joe's Reef, but detail about exactly what was there remained a mystery because of its depth. An underwater vehicle filmed the reef afar when it first mapped it in 2011. Now two members of Tasmanian Scuba Divers Club, James Parkinson and Adrias Clocker, have taken a much clearer close-up look. The pair dubbed Citizen Divers used equipment known as rebreathers which allowed them to dive deeper and stay underwater longer. They filmed a wide range of marine life, some of it never before seen by scientists. Mr. Clocker explored reefs all over the world, including the Maldives and Thailand, but said that this was by far the best dive he had ever experienced. I think we have some of the best diving here in Tasmania, to be honest. I don't bother going overseas much more for ocean diving. It seems like the deeper you get in Tassie, the more colorful it gets in general. When you start in the first 20 to 30 meters, you see a lot of kelp, and it's a bit murky, a bit brownish, but then it gets a lot clearer after that. And deeper you go, the more colors you see and the more variety of life. Researchers are using 3D mapping technology with multi-beam sonar to capture what is lying on the seafloor beyond conventional diving depths. Institute for Marine and Archaeological Studies, IMAS project leader Nevis Barrett said the vision provided detailed information about marine life on the reef. We are in the early stages of actually understanding what it is, what's special about it, what are the values of the reserve, and how we go about managing those values. This is all new exploration or adding to our knowledge of what's out there in the area within sight of everyone, but because it's below the surface of the water, we really don't have a clue of what's out there. So this this first section, that's it's interesting. These are serious technical divers. The, the, the photo, that's a great Facebook uh, profile photo, wouldn't you say? Well, yeah, I, I, I'm curious about some of the statements I've never seen by scientists, which is interesting. I'd like to know what hadn't been found by them. Uh, the deeper you go, the more colorful it gets. So that's not going to be 
most of the divers are not going to be out there messing with this area. So when they come down to the aspect, the pictures are fabulous. Did you see the one for the uh, black corals? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's the next section they talk about. Uh, first time black coral is reported. Yeah. Well, you can see the background, meaning if you don't have a good light, it's black out there. Oh, that, that's the only reason deep. they're saying it's more colorful is because they've got lights. That, I was thinking the same thing. Is light as you go down, you start losing that red spectrum pretty quickly. Right. And then they say, we know they are quite fragile animals, so they need a degree of protection to ensure we can maintain them in these kind of waters. I have no clue what kind of protection well, we can do for something to spend there for eons. You're you're limited in what you're going to... I mean, just don't go down there and screw them up is about all I can think of. You're not going to... Well, at 210 feet, there's not going to be a lot of divers on No. I mean, the only thing you would say is, and you're not going to have ships grounding themselves on them because no ship draws that deep. And if a ship wrecks, it's taking, you know, even the largest aircraft carrier, if it sank there, isn't going to be taking yeah. that much of the bottom. And they've been there for eons because it said here, we know for a fact these guys can live for many hundreds, if not in fact, thousands of years. So they're, they're, they've been here before us. And they're going to be here long after. The, the only thing would be is if, if they were shallower and it was something where you had a lot of tourists touching and breaking them off. But it's such an invest. People who are going to have the gear, they're talking about rebreathers. And they're not just rebreathers, but you have to have enough volume of, of air and stage bottles to go down there. So you have significant investment. You, know, you could buy a car or you could buy the equipment these guys have. Yeah. Plus, you, how far offshore are they to get to these places? I don't think they quite say i was looking at the map and i can't tell distances on it yeah yeah they're showing borney uh not borney i won't keep when i say borney bichino b-i-c-h-e-n-o yeah i will and, say if nothing else the pictures alone are worth looking at on this oh, one it's, a, it's another great article and these articles uh thanks to jim billing who's been maintaining our website he will have those posted probably sometime uh, he's usually ready before i've got the show edited that's how quick he is at it uh, but you'll have the show notes and you can follow along dave's been in the chat room thank you to dave for uh, posting them and then to our patreon supporters you get all these show notes before the show even starts oh there, yeah there's another one if you go down even farther the reef is oh no i still don't say <laughs> yeah but i love that photo that black coral that is amazing yep beautiful yeah dave says he has friends who who go there and brag about the scuba tech says he's surprised how colorful is a dark environment you know I, you know either it's the point where they haven't had to mask their true colors mm-hmm. to blend in because nothing can see the color or it's a case that it's trying to attract something because of color, so it has to be extreme for it to even be noticed by. Right, well, I think that's where that bioluminescence comes uh, into play. Oh, bioluminescence. I, I love it when you see uh, where there, yeah, people doing a night dive, and they run their hands through the water, and just by moving their hand through the water, it causes it all to luminesce. It's another thing we don't have in uh, freshwater that I'm aware of. <laughs> I haven't seen, you know, even, even near uh, South Haven or Bridgman, you don't have bioluminescence. And then we have an article about how you can explore a World War II shipwreck without getting wet. And I think the answer is uh, either have uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in budget and equipment or look over somebody's shoulder who does. So this is this is an article from the Christian Science Monitor talking about uh, the exploration vessel Nautilus, which was broadcasting live from the USS Independent, which was the aircraft carrier that was scuttled off the coast of San Francisco 65 years ago. Uh, Bob Ballard, who is running the project, dove to the wreckage of USS Independence, a World War II-era aircraft carrier that had participated in nuclear weapons tests, and you just sent me a link. So this one is the uh, sanctuaries. Oh, that's another beautiful photo. 
Well, this is on the aircraft carrier before and after, what it looked like before, and then what the ship looks like on the bottom right now. If you go and look at the uh, the in our photos of the week section, we also have the Daily Mail's article where they had printed a ton of photos. Let me send that to you. It's it's also in our show notes. When you Those... talk twenty six hundred feet, the only way you're going to see it was a long cable or a submersible. Yeah, it's beyond your typical drop cam. Yeah, I don't think my GoPro would work down there. Well, the tough thing, uh, and we have we had an article coming up where they talk about somebody doing a drop cam. You have to have patience and and be pretty much right on target. Well, I like the article on it because it talks about having been used in nuclear explosion testing. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, checking it out now, it's what, 99% mm-hmm. of its radio, you know, of its original radioactivity that it had, 99% of it's already gone. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting. You know, I, you know, you because you worked in the industry, me because my dad also worked into it. Uh, I, I tend not to be super worked up over radiation. Uh, you know, if, if it's radioactive, yeah, you, you, you might not want to play with it. But when you look at the type of, uh, radioactivity that's on here, it's really low level at this point in time. It's, uh, I got to get back to the original article, but there's uh, trying to see what type of cesium I think they, they tell us, but it had a fairly short half life. It didn't say what radioactive material it was it was exposed to it just it just gave that its uh, half-life was every seven years oh so after 65 years that's quite a few cycles and that's why it's lost it and i don't know if that was alpha beta uh i can't believe you're going to have any gamma from any of that i wouldn't think so at this uh, plus the the other thing about uh, radioactivity is that water is an excellent shielder for it, which is why you know nuclear plants use it. And spent fuel pools is that uh, you know water does a good job of absorbing the radioactivity. Yep, that's absolutely true. I've dove in the, the spent fuel pit like that before, and it's interesting how close I can get to it. That if it were on the surface, you'd have been dead. Oh yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's you know if you don't know what it, how to deal with radioactivity, it's it's something that you don't want to play with. It's worth being uh, cautious on it, but uh, it 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 is something that's you know something that can be managed. Uh, Professor Vetter said that neither the submersible or team was ever any danger of contamination because water is an excellent radiation field shield. Underwater radiation only extends several inches from contaminated material, and the unmanned research submarine stayed at least a hundred feet away from the wreck. And it's it's you know it's kind of like when you you get an uh, you know, because you've, you've got the, the radioactivity, so it's going out two inches, but the particles aren't like jumping. You know, the particles have rested within the ship, and that's what's contaminated. And, you know, if you don't get within that two inch, then you're not going to absorb radiation and have the problem. And what happens in the human bodies is we absorb the radiation in the thyroid, and that usually where we problem. I try and figure that out. Cobalt 60 has a half life of a little over five years, so I'm not quite sure that what had seven they were talking about. And I've, I've seen them, there was, there was a, a few different things. So uh, kind of a little backstory about this wreck is that it was used in two nuclear explosions. What they were trying to do is determine uh, what the effects would be. And at the time, the military certainly didn't understand the impact uh, and had misjudged several things about tests. I, I think they were hoping that it would prove less lethal than it was and more survivable. And they ended up crapping up a whole lot of uh, vessels and people who were involved in the test. Uh, Ninety vessels were assembled as a tiny, as a target fleet in the Bikini Atoll tests that were in 1946, and that's why if you're diving the. Bikini Atoll is excellent diving because you've got all the ships that they sunk there. Uh, 
And then this particular one was transported uh, back to Pearl Harbor in San Francisco for study. And then uh, later it was sunk near the uh, Fireland Islands on the 26th of January, 1951, loaded with 55-gallon drums of low-level radioactive waste. And then this year they were able to relocate where it was uh, sunk. What's interesting is I was reading through the comments and I've gone through quite a few articles and they said there's no documentation saying that there was waste loaded onto the vessel. So it's just been commonly uh, assumed and said that there was waste on there. Now, I wonder if that information is coming from people who actually worked on it. I would assume that if you worked on that vessel, you stored your, your result waste and drums probably on the vessel. So when they sank it, it went with it. Well, it's kind of like the, the nuclear plant. When you have, you know, your scrubs and other gear. Yeah, anti-seize. Yeah, you, you, that's usually where they end up is in a drum that, and they get processed to a facility. Right, because that's low waste. Right. So that would make sense that the, that low waste. But they, you know, when you read these articles, you think that they just, you know, this is a, a ship brimming with barrel. At one point, they, they came across some aircraft and it sounded like they were, they were surprised. But then when I read through the footnotes, some people were kind of upset because they said, yeah, we knew they were there you know because they were there as part of the test you know, that they would put items on the uh, shipwrecks when they, when they during the bombing so they could see what the result was but some beautiful beautiful photos and like you said we're it's not like we're going to be able to get down there and do some diving at this quite a few uh, sponges and sea life that's come onto them <laughs> the chat room saying that parts of the detroit river glow <laughs> wouldn't surprise me yeah i don't even know where to go with that but a nice collection of those and again those will be in a show notes and then, you know, if you don't have the budget of uh, Dr. Ballard, you can do what this this person did. And they're doing a drop cam, and they did that in Tahoe Lake. So what he would do is he took a GoPro. Looks like he modified a housing, and then uh, he would drop it down the water. So he'd get on a boat. So he'd ask people to take him out in a boat for his GoPro. And the, he would take the camera, and at some points he would go down a quarter of a mile, see what lied on the bottom. People had talked quite a bit about all sorts of theories about what's down there, but he's been slowly, as he can get access, dropping the camera down. He can't watch the camera live while it's on the bottom, but when he gets it back up, he pops into his laptop, and then he can watch what's on it. Well, I talk about time-consuming. Yeah. Hey, I mean, what else are you going to do? You get out in the boat, you know. The, the tough thing is, are you anchoring at that depth, or are you just trying to... Do you use a trolling motor to keep from drifting? Or do you maybe tie a buoy onto it and then come back for it later? Because that, 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 to me, would be the challenge. Well, if you didn't have a line all the way to the bottom, it would drift too. Well, that's what I'm saying is that you would, you would he, he has a line because he's able to reel it back up. It's not an ROV. He's just doing a drop camera. The lake is uh, 22 miles long and 12 miles wide. It says it's always exciting because every time we do it, uh, everything's new. I like the part where they said we found a large fish while videotaping at 1,100 feet. It said it looked remarkably shark-like, but it was probably a large lake trout. Well, then then they had the, uh, after reviewing the image, researchers from UC Davis noted the fish swam like a shark-like motion, and some of the visible fins and mouth shape resembled a bull shark. A bull shark, the researcher noted, would not be able to survive in Tahoe's cold water. The researchers concluded most likely it was a large lake trout, and the image may be distorted by the angle, light, and water. So we think. <laughs> yeah. Well, bull, bull sharks are notorious for being able to survive in areas that they can't, they're not supposed. To. That's a freshwater lake, isn't it? I'm sorry, which one? Lake Tahoe. That's freshwater. I believe so, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, bull, bull sharks can, for an amount of time, survive in freshwater. I think uh, they do need to be in saltwater to survive long term. I think they can bring in that brackish because they've been going up the Mississippi further and further every year. Well, I've still have heard a rumor that at the turn of the century, and I'm talking 1900, that there was a bull shark attack in Chicago. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that makes for a good story. Yeah. 
I definitely think there are species in life at the bottom of Tahoe that we don't know about, Pat said. He hopes to ultimately answer that and many other questions of what lies below the Did you know it's the second deepest lake in the United States and the tenth deepest in the world? It doesn't seem possible when you think of it. I mean, Lake Tahoe. Well, it says snow, rain, and streams fill the southern and lowest part of the basin forming the ancestral Lake Tahoe. See, and that's the same thing with some of those other lakes where they were discovering trees and stuff. They say that just because of where they are. I'm doing the Google Earth thing. Well, they said maximum depth is 1,645 feet. So really what it is, it's a valley that filled with water. So if no place for water to not go on. 40 to 50 degree Fahrenheit water surface temperature, but can warm to 65 to 70 during August and below 600 feet, constant 39 degree Fahrenheit. It does also say that the water clarity has been reduced over the years. It used to be uh, 100 feet in the late 60s. It's now 70 feet. Stop and pooping I lose in the lake. Oh, say again? I said stop pooping in the lake. That's what it is. It's all the runoff from people's yards, fertilizer and things that build up. Yeah, get these humans off this planet, man. They go back to really nice being, you know. <laughs> Now, how's this for, uh, I didn't know that you could even do this. It's a luxury safari in South Africa. And for Diamonds. divers, it, I, would, I wouldn't have guessed, you know, other than gold seems to be something that's always going around, but is, uh, the activity is scuba diving for diamonds. Cape Town's Ellerman House Hotel launches the first ever diamond safari in partnership with uh, Bengala Diamonds. The world's first R215,000 Ellerman House exclusive jewelry hunting trip replaces traditional game drive with exhilarating entry-level dive. So that is 11,400 pounds is what they're charging for this trip. The Diamond Safari begins at Ellerman's house where guests will be collected in a chauffeured limousine and transferred to a private terminal at Cape Town International Airport. The VIP treatment continues on board a private chartered flight, Swiss-designed Pilatus PC-12 jet or a King Air 200 aircraft to Port uh, Nolith in the West Coast. After breakfast at a luxurious villa on the coast of Port Nolith and McDougal's Bay, guests will, with a current patio open water one certificate, have the option to join the Bengula dive masters to work their magic underwater. Non-divers can remain on the boat to wait for the divers to return to the surface with precious seabed gravel, which will then be jiggled to separate heavier gemstones such as garnets, olivines, and uh, diamonds from the gravel using a vibrating pan cyst. Back at the villa, the villa guests can enjoy a gourmet lunch on a terrace cooked by a private chef. Before it's time to sort through the gemstone, the day's treasure with an expert from uh, the sorting team, guests will have the opportunity to learn about grading diamonds and to select a rough diamond to be cut, polished, set jewelry at the studio and uh, Stellenbach. Mining your own diamonds gives us a very exclusive niche in the market where traceability has become extremely important. Not only certifies the origin of our diamonds, but it is also a guarantee of fair working condition in our concession. Back at Cape Town, guests can raise a toast to their catch carrot with the signature Dom Perignon Experience Champagne and Culinary Pairing Experience exclusive to the hotel. The safari will be available from the 1st of September today and is uh, strictly dependent on prevailing weather conditions available for maximum six guests. Trip costs 11,400 pounds and includes road transfers, return airfare, and a private jet and all food and beverages, including the Dom Perignon experience. Price remains the same regardless of two, four, six guests travel together. Note that the price excludes the cost of any diamonds purchased. Also excludes the cost of designing and manufacturing the jewelry. Uh, nightly rates at the Ellerman House start from 305 pounds. 
So I was thinking that's per person, but they're making it sound like that six guests, or maybe it is per person. I just don't care how come. Well, according to the grouping, you can expect to pay roughly ten thousand five hundred for a one carat round brilliant diamond cut, including VAT, if you process what you have done there. Right. And it's a to date the largest stone found in the area was an eighty carat rough diamond. Once cut, the gem was uh, roughly sixteen carats. But typically, coming out with a one-carat stone is more realistic. In the and chat room, ninety-five percent of the stones in the air are gem quality. In the chat room, they're saying you find it, you find the stone, you pay for the trip. I, I think they're saying you find it, it's theirs. <laughs> You're not. They're not letting you keep it. I get the other way. I, I understand you get to keep it, but if you have it processed, they do the processing. Oh, well, now see, I, yeah, uh, other than their diamonds, I sound like a humbug, but diamonds are such a bad investment. Well, diamonds are controlled pretty well, and that's why their value stays at one you know, one item. Well, it, it, the, but the value is only for De Beers and jewelry stores who have bought them. As soon as you buy them, go, go you buy a diamond for 5000 and try and sell it for anything Close. more than half. Absolutely. But, you know, they're pretty and people like them, so that's fine. I mean, it's decoration. It's like anything. How much is makeup? Anything else beside it. And, and here, it's experience. I mean, it'd be kind of fun. And you can actually die for diamonds in other places, except they're not as safe nor accessible. This, this looks like they're doing a hooker rig. They show the photo in the article. Can't be too deep. No, I'm I'm didn't look deep in that photo, but, you know, holes can go down. Well, sure got a lot of weight on him, though. You see that close-up picture of that? Well, I don't see you're not kidding. On that. Yeah, look at the weights on that guy. That's not a uh, a Maui class or whatever they said certification. No, that no, guy no. is not dressed for that. Not to mention, I don't see a lifeline on him or fins. How do? Well, he's working on the bottom. I don't need fins if I'm on the bottom. But how the hell he's going to get back up? I don't see something to pull him up with. Yeah, I'm. I, I agree. I, I I'm guessing it must not be super deep out know, there in twenty thirty feet. In fact, if you look at the shoreline, doesn't that look like a quarry? Sort of does, doesn't it? Yeah, like this was a quarry that flooded, and they're just diving now instead of pumping out the quarry. They probably they probably it was originally a diamond quarry because uh, diamonds with I'm trying to remember what they call that because it's it was a lot of times it was a was a kimberlite or something like that. And it's a, a type of material that is known to have lots of diamonds. Or usually diamonds are, are carbon under a lot of pressure and heat, and they tend to be around volcanic activity. Well, looking at that picture and looking at his rig, would you jump in the water with that? I don't, but I watch a lot of those shows, and I won't do the stuff that they do. <laughs> I just don't think that they realize what they're doing. Because uh, you speak about other shows. Bearing Tea Gold. They, they just started up the new season of it. Yeah. Oh, and I, and I watch those guys. I'm like, how are you guys not dead? I, Have I you don't... seen some of those fun me's for those groups? No. Oh, you ought to look into some of that. Some of that's quite interesting of what they're offering you for how much money you want to spend. So I can go fund me and I can be in the show? Yes, but you're talking significant funding for being in the show. 21 days, live aboard their blah, 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 and you're talking up to $250,000. Bearing. <laughs> I keep typing bearing because that's the county we live in. I can't. I can't stop typing it. B e r i n g. Just put that in there. Gold. B e r i n g. Yep. I keep wanting to say Barian. Barian's gold series started in 2012, continuing on. It's pretty good. There's one. It's called the Alaska Dispatch News. And it talks about reality tri- uh, check. Digging deep on the upcoming season of Bering T Gold. It's it's really good. Yeah, I, I'm liking this season uh, because they're they're starting off this time with the the winner, the the one that I'm watching. Is that the same one that you're seeing? Uh, no, I'm looking up one from the Alaska Dispatch. Something not on yours. Oh, okay. So here's a Bering Sea Gold's Emily Rydell crowds. Oh yeah, Emily. Yeah, she was going to be an opera singer, by the way. I I remember seeing that in the first season. She was because she was. I, I think she 
she's actually mellowed out a little bit. She was super wacky that first season, and then she. Uh, I don't think she's changed too much. <laughs> uh, you see her dad? Holy mackerel! <laughs> I'm not in a diver. He was he was way out there. Yeah. Well, I don't. That first season, she went underwater and freaked out. Yeah. That that that's what. And some people just aren't meant for it, but it seems like if she'd had the opportunity to have some proper training, get some time to get familiar. I, I couldn't imagine if that was my first experience was being thrown over the side. of. If you were interested right. in that, there's some really good articles on how much it costs to uh, get claiming rights for acreage under the water. Oh, it, it's so it, much per acre or half acre. Uh, it exists for like five years. You have to renew. It, it's really interesting. Yeah, I'm fascinated by it, but I, it's like that's just I don't want to have to deal with it. I would go. I, I'd love to go up there and try oh, I would love to go up there, but I don't want to have to manage all that stuff. Manage what stuff? Oh, you mean the paperwork? All, all the paperwork and, you know, it, to me, it, you do it for fun. Yeah, you're not going to make a, you're not going to make any money. No, no, I, I think you got to go into it not realize you're going to make money. It's like how much can I afford to lose? Well, it's like the one guy said. Well, I've only lost two hundred and fifty thousand, but I think I could recover it next year. Excuse me, is, <laughs> I don't that, have two hundred and fifty thousand. I could lose to is, come back yeah. next. Well, is that that one? There's one guy who's a pilot uh, for. Uh, a vessel. So I think he's like when your when your you know cargo carrier goes in the port, he's the guy who drives it in. And I think that they get paid rather well. Merle or one of those guys. But uh, yeah, we're a little bit off track. Anybody wants to invite us up just for a week or something? Yeah. Hey, I'll pay my own way. No, it's all about cross promotion. You know, we'll mention your dredge, and you know, we we go up there. We'll dive. We'll sh- we'll show you how it's done. <laughs> And then we gotta do you gotta you gotta insult somebody, say that they don't know how to dive and then they'll they'll send us up. I think we do okay. I, I don't wanna insult anybody. I just like to see their how they're using their hot water rigs and that cold water. They're all diving dry suit uh wetsuits, aren't they? Well they'll be diving a hot water suit. Right. That's what I would imagine. But I'd like to know the average depth they're diving that, especially when they're right under the ice shelf. That could be a little tricky. Well, they, they did. There's one season where they showed it where the ice was getting right down to the bottom. And then when you have uh, the tides coming in and out, uh-huh. if you're not if you're in the wrong spot at the wrong time. Yeah, there's a few of those where I was uh, I was watching thinking that. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. I know. That's a, we sort of got off track here talking about diamonds. But, but diamonds, hey, gold makes sense because that's something we could actually do. And they've usually got pretty good visibility. I'm pretty impressed with this. You know, and it, it's all the things that we already do. I mean, we already know how to do a dredge. We, you know, cold water, who cares? Visibility. Well, that's even better. The one thing I'm I'm always puzzled by is uh, how how deep are they? I know there was one spot where they were they were actually getting the bend. I can't remember the last season of the season. I never saw it where everybody got the bends. Well, they it wasn't officially diagnosed, but they were diving at about seventy feet of water, and they weren't diving with a computer keeping track of time. And they were thinking that a couple of the guys were acting a little funny, mm-hmm. and that was kind of the speculation on the show is that they had the bends. I don't know. It you know it's it's reality TV, so they cut things together to make it interesting for a plot. And also here's uh, for some searching. They got the. Antikythera shipwreck uh, expedition is starting up again. I don't know if the time of year or what determines it, but it seemed like in the spring they were doing it. The second phase of the 2016 expedition on the first century shipwreck has started. It's, uh, it actually started today. Machines are being set up at this moment, said uh, Simosa. While the return to the Antikythera official website announced that members of the expedition are arriving on the island from various parts of the world to continue the search. The first phase of the excavation by the Greek underwater activities, Euphoria 
for it, and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in the U.S. is conducted from May 22nd till June 11th, recovering a number of new finds. These included a bronze spear, piece of marble statue, entire left hand, a bronze cased leg, piece of wooden furniture, glass vases, bowls, millifori brown glass, amphora, cups, jugs, gold rings. Archaeologists have additionally discovered elements of the ship itself, such as nails of various sizes, resins, lead sheeting, lead pipes, and lead weight of about 100 kilos, among other finds. There's also convincing evidence of second shipwreck on the site, including lead piping from a different diameter from the first, nails, tiles, amphora, and other vessels of a different type. The expedition is taking place under the aegis of the president of Hellenic Republic Procopus Palacopolis, with the participation of archaeologists from Greece and abroad. So we should be seeing some articles coming up again. Uh, once. Did, the, did, did you ever read the beginning of that, how that started? Sponge divers? Yeah, they found it in 1900. Yeah. And they put a diver down, a diver, and it was at 45 meters. And when he came back up, he, he got down, then he, he was saying, hey, pull me up like now. So they brought him up, and he was saying he, he didn't want to go down there because the seafloor was littered with rotting corpses and horses. And the people thought, well, God, he's got rapture, you know, really bad. So his boss went back down, came back to the surface and said, he's right. <laughs> and he also came up holding a bronze statue. So there was still rotting uh, horses well, in 1900. Rotting, rotting might have been a, a, a weird word, you know, because if you're down there thousands, you're not going to be rotting per se. No. And then uh, they did salvage efforts through 2000 or 1901 at that time. Mm-hmm. And in 1902, the Minister of Education, you know, was studying those, uh, the artifact, and that's where the government sort of got involved in everything. But they've been diving this now, what? Yeah. It's 1900, so that's 117, 16 years. Yeah, Jacques Cousteau went back down and, you know, he redid some, some diving on the site. Right. Well, they had that hiatus actually from 1902 to 1953, and that's when Jacques Cousteau went. So very interesting. Makes all our shipwrecks look new. They all are. As, as a side note, when we were diving tonight, afterwards we went out and discussed our, our dives, and uh, Rob pulled out a small little coin he wanted to show us, and it's maybe like big as your thumbnail. And it's uh, almost 2,000 years old. The coin. Coin. Uh, Rob's also a metal detectorist. Uh-huh. And uh, he, he won the, that coin, but he said the value of the coin in England was about $6. If I had something 2,000 years old, I would hope it's worth more than $5. Well, I think it's because it was the equivalent of a of a of probably a penny or a nickel in whatever time's age it was. But to have something in your pocket that's 2,000 years old, but you hold so it and many you think of, of who held this oh, just I, before they lost it. Well, to me, it, I, I like that value. I mean, how many hands has it touched? How long has it gone? How much bought? Yeah, it and, yeah, and what, you know, what king has got the little crown emblem on it? That that that's why I dive. You're you might find something that outstanding. Doesn't have to have a lot of value. It's just who had it? How'd they lose it? Why'd they lose it? We got we got a couple more articles and then we'll get on to next week's dives. I don't know how I'm going to cut this one down. That's going to be another long one. Uh, but this next article, which I wanted to make sure that we got to, especially since we have divers up in Lake Superior, not yeah. here. But we, they discovered a century-old steam train. Uh, the, the find was located in 235 feet of water. Uh, the train, uh, they had a good idea where it was because it went off the rails in uh, 1910 after hitting boulders. The engine had been lost since the crash, but it was rediscovered this July. They hoped to bring it up. They had hoped to bring it up, but it's too badly decayed. Canadian Pacific Railway locomotive number 694 lane beneath 235 feet of fresh water, a uh, short distance from Marathon, Ontario, for 106 years. The doomed locomotive... Uh, 
was found by a team of shipwreck hunters. And they said that was Wednesday. This is, this is, it had been founded in July and they just announced it in August. Some nice photos of it. You know, when, when people say they're going to bring something up, you know, things like this, usually when they even, they break rather horribly. Do you see the picture of that boat? They used for that. No. You got your four pictures going down. Then you'll have the picture of the red boat. Found the boat using remote control vehicles. Boat. Oh, wait, wait. This is below. God. These ads. Would you like to have that? Crazy. Oh, wouldn't you love to have that? That little red boat? Yeah. That's a nice one. That's about the size. That's one. That'd be that'd be like my first. <laughs> it's got, it, it meets my requirements. Maybe I'll book. That's, that's got nice. So it's got like a little cabin on it. It's got the side plank. Yeah. The article here is pretty good, except it misquoted itself. It said the train was rowing along the tracks June 19th, 2010. <laughs> it's like, oops, maybe not. Uh, maybe that was a ghost train has been going. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that boat is great. That train picture is, is wonderful. Makes you wonder where the bell is. Ah, yes. Yeah, that's in Canada. So you never know what their their rules are up there. Uh, not too many guys are going to be playing around there at 235 in that cold water either. Well, they went down to take the photo, so you would think you would think you'd get that all lined up in advance. Probably a yep. museum would be willing to take the bell, wouldn't you think? Museum might like that one. Yeah, because that's something that you can put up and you show a picture. You have the bell sitting there and serve. Yeah, I'm looking back. I'm going back looking up the photos. Yeah, you. Can, I mean, look at that axle. It's all broken up wheel. It's, I mean, that's just, it took a hard pounding when it came down. The train can't be lifted out of the water because it decayed so badly. In 2014, another team had found the boxcars, but the engine was separated from they said, it's the only locomotive that I'm aware of in the Great Lakes, said Tom Crossman of Duluth, Idaho, whose remotely operated vehicle helped find the wreck. Huh. It seems like we've heard the story that every lake has a train in it. Every lake has a Model T in it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of surprised why they, they think that's the only one in the Great Lakes. There's got to be more. That's if, if somebody's a research person, that'd be something to look at. They're still looking for the boxcar with the gold in it, but we won't go there. Remember that one? Yeah. Oh, that'll be in an article here soon enough. Well, let's see. That does it for Scuba the News. We do have some photos of the week, which, again, were the aircraft carrier of the USS Independence. You can get those in our show notes on our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. They are outstanding, by the way. It's worth it just to look at the pictures before and after. They are outstanding. And then we have some potentially new uh, cool scuba gear. They're going to be in the show notes. The first one is just a, a, a communication underwater. They've got an underwater grid that they're using for different projects, and that's three kilometers deep. And then the next article, which we're just going to briefly go over, is that uh, if you remember that, what, what was that? The Equay computer that's supposed to be able to give you direction. Okay. They've actually started developing software. So now, with a surface buoy, you can post to Facebook while you're underwater. Isn't that exactly what you want to do? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm going to run out and do that right now. Yeah. He says... Uh, so they're, they're testing this in, in Sweden. Now, the dive computer's out. They they haven't sent us, so yeah, until we see it, I don't know if it's real. But uh, they said um, the message that he supposedly sent was, right now I'm diving at 16.1 meters, the temperature is 15 degrees. This is only the beginning, so... So they're talking about it, um, and they and if you look at the photo, they show they have a uh, a photo of looks like a surface buoy. Imagine they're using that to relay because they've had this system. They've been announcing it for a couple of years, and I think they started shipping it earlier this. Year. It's the Aquay A Q W A R Y Aquary, I guess. It's a Swedish startup. They have their smart console, which uses hydrophones, underwater microphones to communicate with each other within a hundred meters. Data is sent over ultrasound. It said if you could hear it, it'd probably sound like one of those old modems in the eighties. Right now, they have they're not really it to where you can write apps for it, but uh, they're planning on releasing, uh, it'll have a browser where people can write certain programs. The reason they don't want apps for it is because it is considered to be a safety device. They even, they even joked around about you could do Pokemon underwater. 
Interesting. And like we've we've said, we wouldn't. Well, I'd love to dive one. And then Hackaday had an article about uh, a DYI regulator, which I'm going to say right now, this is not one of the things I recommend most people do. Uh, there's a lot of DIY projects that you can do with scuba, but I'm thinking your primary uh, breathing device may not be the one that you want to experiment with. The, the item I like about this, the quote I'm just reading, as is often the case, while this design and the theory behind it are very interesting, sometimes the comments from the peanut gallery are even more entertaining. Oh, <laughs> Uh, they were talking about the safety aspect. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it, it's pretty interesting. Uh, what was it here? Makers had mixed ideas on the level of danger with a few encouraging comments regarding safety. Figuring this mode would be about as safe as breathing, breathing air pumped out of a bike tire. Uh, well, I actually have done that. So well, yeah. I'm, I'm a poor one to uh, debate this. That, that explains a little bit. No, I, I, it depends on what you're doing. If you're in a pool playing around, uh, I mean, this could be. And this is how they got invented. Somebody well, had to experiment with them in the beginning. Right, and I'm a firm believer of, of open source. I've got other projects I'm going to be releasing in the next year. They'll be open source. And the thing about open source is that you've got the power of the crowd. And you've got a lot of people that all collectively, you know, there's a lot of high-quality, knowledgeable people that can help and assist come up with stuff. And you may be able to make something better than a commercial operation because the motivation is different. A business is doing something to make money and to be profitable. But a community of people who are contributing together, it's to make the best device that's the best for them. And that can be at odds and better than what a commercial product. But you want to have it vetted. Uh, but we've seen the Open ROV project, how well that's done. Um, so it's, you know, at first we want to laugh at it, but it could be something that could could be nice in the end. Just the, what you'd have to do, which is tough, is what is the quality control process for somebody? I mean, if I if I decide that I want to go and build my own regulator and I don't have any experiment experience, how do I know that I built it right and that it's not going to kill me when I go down? What a great great idea! So that does it for Scuba in the News. I'd like to thank everyone in the chat room. We had uh, Vanessa the Mermaid. We had Dave who had to leave because I think he's got to get up early. We had Scuba Tech, a couple of guests in there, Flyboy Ned, and Northwest Illinois. So thank you for coming in the chat room. If you want to follow us, you can go to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Go to Twitter at uh, Scuba Obsessed. See what else does um Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed, which we also have photos of those hutchies on if you want to take a look or go to our website, click over to our Patreon account and you can get yourself a hutchie, the one that we keep talking about that are so hard to get, ones that I have yet to find with all my my underwater diving. And Jim just recently found his first one after years and years of grubbing. Now, Mac, to put us all to shame, how many hutchies have you found? Uh, Many, many dozens. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, talking about some of the uh, prizes, what I'd like to do is I've got another collection ready for you that are better than what you might expect. But like tonight, I found another croc, a really intact. Uh, Rob found, for example, example, a uh, very nice uh, ceramic poison crock labeled with, um, like, it's not a stencil per se. It's like painted on it. Really, really nice. So I'll probably post some pictures of that on the club site tonight. Okay. But, yeah. Uh, any, any more you want to put out, we'll put out there. We're, we're going to run this special all the way through September. Right. And it's really just an incentive. It's You're not going to make money. Whatever you donate to us is, is worth more than what it is. Other than what else can you own that has been personally touched and discovered by our dive mentors? <laughs> I mean that has to have some inherent value, right? And some of these some of these bottles are going to be really neat to put on your mantle anyway. I've yeah. got a couple of medicines that are really good, you know, highly embossed. There are some unique soda bottles that you just don't find anymore. So they're going to be nice. You're going to like them. We'll clean them enough so they don't stink up your room or something. Ah. 
things. Yeah, yeah, they they are they're, they're pretty clean. I mean, we clean them as as much as we can, but then also you got to remember is that these aren't these are the ones that we decided we didn't want to. <laughs> well, no, actually, I, I some of these are keepers from my collection. I'm sort of getting rid of my collection. So, oh, okay. Well, th- there you go, people. That's a, your chance to get something that Mac decided was good enough that he kept. Well, a lot of the stuff the museum has enough of. Like I've got some clay pipes. I'm going to donate. Oh wow, nice. Yeah, don't find the clay pipes out there too often. No, and there's some story behind them. So yes, sir. Maybe that's what we'll have to do. So uh, uh, when we get ready to ship them out, maybe we'll have to put a little note in the box explaining the provenance object and maybe a little bit of history. It, it's They'll have its own patina. <laughs> they do. And they have a look. That's what I was going to mention is have my daughter, who has a good design eye, is, uh, you know, what, what kind of decorations? If you've got, if you have a, a if you're design, you're decorating your apartment, you know, they there's always that little, you know, me, it looks like a hoarder's mess. But when a, a young female does it in an apartment, it somehow looks stylish. So that's what I have to do is get that. How you take those those big milk bottles we have. Yeah, you yeah. put your roses and stuff inside, oh, and you've roses, got like yes. night we found. Yeah, it's highly embossed, and it's got a four digit phone number to call. How I mean, how long has it been since you've had a four digit phone? I, it's never. <laughs> I never have. <laughs> uh, you may be aging yourself there if you've had a four digit. God, I do remember that though. <laughs> No, I do remember you didn't have to dial the area code. Uh, I answer number four four eight seven four. That's five digits. Yeah, I, I've I have been in places where they had ad for the place I worked at on the wall that for that. But I what was that probably about nineteen sixties when that was going on? Mm, not sure how things change. But we were talking about some of these objects, or, or many of these are going to be. What are most of them going to be? Pawpaw and uh, the river. Well, Niles River could be Duncan Bay. I've got a couple of Duncan Bay bottles or Sheboygan bottles mm-hmm. that are outstanding yeah. so who knows it'll be one of the great lakes or the the rivers we frequent yeah and i, and I may throw in some from my collection too because there's a few of them that i may need to go find a home uh but the, the interesting thing about niles michigan and I, i've pitched this so if you're a newer listener you may not have heard, heard this story but niles is one of the unique places in the united states in that it, it was ruled by uh, Great Britain, United States, Spain, and France. So you had four uh, different countries who had laid claim to it and were actively had a uh, presence in the area. So I'm always hoping we're going to find something that nobody expected you could find. In. So uh, from the Fort St. Joe Society, what's the most unusual thing that they've found near the river? Uh, they found some coins that were older than they had anticipated finding. Obviously, it was no coin when the guy lost it back in the 1600s. Right. Yeah, because if you had if you had a coin that had been circulating a while, and that just happened to be when you lost it. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, our histories only go back to about 1650 in this area. So you're not going to find something much older than 1650 unless somebody actually brought something from another country, which is what happens sometimes. Yeah. Vanessa in the chat room is asking how the Hutchie actually worked. How the what? How a Hutchie worked. The Hutchie bottle, yeah, how it works because you have to stop her. Oh, the old, the old days, and it's a it's a wife's tale, but we always use it. Is you've heard the term soda pop, mm-hmm. but what they do is they take the Hutchie bottle, you put your soda in it or your your flavoring, then you add your salt water, your soda water, and then you shake it. And what that top does, then the pressure makes the top come up and seal it. So, and it's got a little wire loop that'll be up. So when you're ready to to drink it, you take your hand and you slam it down on the top. And when it does that, you're going to hear this pop. And that's where they say, hey, that's where the term soda pop came from. Ah, so it sounds good. Michigan, course, we I don't say think it's true. Yeah. And then you had like the hook you used to have when you'd um, 
a button hook for your shoes that'll look like that. You can then put it down in a bottle, grab the stopper back up, and pull it up to reseal it. Yeah, because what there's a stopper, and it looks like because these the all these Hutchies that we've got listed, they all still have the stoppers. And the stopper wasn't that a little bit of is that a rubber ring? It's, it's like a rubber ring with a little casting around the top and a weird looking spring that allows it to go down and hopefully not too far down so it can drink and still capture the, the ring and pull it back up. So if, if you picture the bottle where it narrows, the stopper's too big to come up through the top and the ring is, is too big for it to go back down. So it stays there in the neck. So like you said, you push down on that, that metal that pushed the stopper down to release the pressure. And then I guess you drink around the ring. Well, you'd normally pour it out. A lot of people would pour it out. Ah, so they, they weren't lazy like we are now. Yeah. You'd be civilized and you'd pour it into glass. Yeah, they didn't guzzle probably. They sipped. <laughs> Well, soda at one point was fairly rare because they didn't have a good way of creating carbon dioxide. That, that's that's forestry program. But the Hutchies. So the, what were the Hutchies timelines? Like the late 1800s, the early 1900s? Uh, yeah, it's like 1860s. 1910, you don't see a lot of them after 1910 because of expense and stuff, mm-hmm. and they're very heavy. Yeah, you pick up the glass, you know that's a substantial bottle. Yeah, but you'll find a, you'll find a lot of times the glass will be uneven in the bottom, and it's very heavy. They'll have teardrops in it, and a lot of them, which add a little bit of a character to it. So uh, I, I misunderstood her question. She says, no, not the Hutchie. Uh, it's the Patreon, how the Patreon works. So what we've done is we've assigned a Patreon value to the bottle, so it's, it's $60. So uh, what you do is you you, you say, hey, I want this bottle. And you just have to have a plan that from the beginning of September to the end will have paid at least $60. And that makes you eligible to claim that bottle. First come, first serve. So uh, six months, $10 a month, $60. There you go. Uh, one way to do it is you select the, the bottle right there. If you're already on a plan, which Vanessa already is, then she can just say, hey, I want to use what I've already committed to. And then once uh, Patreon, which the bills the first of the month, every month, uh, there's been sixty dollars uh, deposited. Then you've covered the price of the bottle. Uh, the only other thing that you have to make sure you cover, and it can be uh, you can either increase your donation to cover it or just go an additional month, which that can go beyond the six months, is the price of the shipping. What we will do is you tell us what method you want it shipped by, and we'll get an estimate, tell you how much it is, and then that just comes. So it's uh, just like uh, you know a value. So say it's a sixty dollar Hutchie, and then for the options you want, you want uh, you know just regular ground UPS. Uh, you don't want any insurance on it. So to say that comes 8 or $9 plus we charge a dollar just for the packaging to cover incidentals and stuff. So that'd be $69. So in the course, you know, once you had donated a total of $69, uh, then it would be yours and we would ship that off. Are we fine with those one size ships all type thing or whatever fits in the box? Yeah, is, as long as I can get it properly. I, I mean, I, I want it to not get damaged, but yeah, I think if, the, if it fits, it ships. That's a possibility it's whatever shipping option you know we're not we're not going to do the twenty dollars and we're making money in shipping this is a thank you gift for people who donate so uh vanessa you just say which bottle you want we've uh each of them has a as a number we've got the three hutchies zero zero one zero zero two zero zero three as people claim them then uh we'll mark those off to that they've been claimed and you get the next so you know, vanessa you know just let me know which one you want and we'll reserve that for you because you certainly yeah, your Listen, level of donation would would be able to have one i tell you what vanessa and she's one, she's the first one, wasn't she? Yeah, she was uh, one of our first uh, donations, I believe. Was I tell you what, I'm gonna get, let let's make arrangements to get her address. We're gonna send her a clay pipe. Oh, so yeah, okay, yeah, we can do that too. Make sure I get that and 
we'll package this up, we'll get her out something that's really special. Yeah, and so and so Vanessa, and, and in fact, I'll just cover the shipping for Vanessa Nice. We're going to go ahead and uh, being the first one, she just tells us which of those hutchies she wants. We'll throw a clay pipe and we'll get that off to you. We know you're good for it, so she says thanks, Max. That's it. We appreciate you, and uh, we, we need to give credit. They, Vanessa, and I gotta look at my notes. My, I'm kind of already in vacation. It, it seems like I was in a meeting with a customer, and they could hardly even put two words together. They were going to be leaving in a couple hours. So one of that's a waste of meeting. So we need to thank uh, Scott Hulberk and Vanessa Homia for uh, donating Patreon at a level. I think they're at the Nitrox level that gets them um, mentioned each week on the program. If you think the show's at least worth worth a dollar, go to our website www.scubobsis click over to patreon take a look at the pretty bottles and uh, make a donation we certainly appreciate it yeah scuba tech saying it makes me get, uh, me want to come and dive with you guys find one myself go for it you can what's the have, have we had any rookie experiences where somebody's first couple times they found a hutch oh uh, no better than that oh i mean highly embossed freaking bottle they stepped on it off the dock. It's like I dive there all the time. How can a bottle possibly be there? You mean you mean marmot? Yes. Oh, uh, th- th- that had to have rolled there. That was Richard. Remember, Richard just stepped down, went down, and reached back under uh, whatever his foot was on. Brought yeah. up this wonderful, highly embossed bottle. Yeah, but but Richard's not exactly a rookie dive. Well, no, but that was his first dive out there with us. Yeah, that yeah. was freaking awesome. Uh, I I have to say my my first ecology dive. I still the best milk I've got was the one I found, and I, I put my hand right on it. I mean, there was no... I just reached down in the silt and picked it, plucked it right up, so... There is some beginners on it. Well, you think now, like, John's not exactly beginner-beginner, right. but John's got at least two hutchies already. Yeah. He's... And that's from the river. He... Well, you don't think you find them in the river? Well, no, I've got a couple hutchies out of the river, too, but yeah. it's unusual to find a hutchie in the river. Okay. And remember what, last year, at the end of the year, Jim got those four bottles in that one little area? Yeah, some, that, sometimes that... it's a matter of just finding the trail and getting in the honey hole. Oh, my God. It's... He had gold on that one. Yeah, and that and that's sometimes it. You can you can go. I, I've seen what I would call the uh, rich Sinuic approach, which you call you cover the the biggest amount of bottom land as quick as you can. And I'm not saying that's how he does bottles, but and shark teeth, that's what he did. Uh, or you can do the the let's dig a hole and hide approach. You sometimes have people who will do that. And if you get onto it almost looks like a bottle dump, then we could do we maybe we need to do another episode just talk about hunter bottles. Cause there's all lots of. And he says I'll take beginner's luck any day. <laughs> So you had a, so that was a good dive tonight then. Um, everybody found at least one keeper that was nice. I think my best one was uh, the croc, totally intact, not even chipped, dented or nothing. Uh, interesting, Nazi. I think John got a, a pop bottle. I'm trying to remember what it was, but it was highly unusual because it's all embossed. You just don't find them like that. And then uh, Rob got that that poison container, mm-hmm. which was awesome. So I'll post a picture on the club side of our stuff, but uh, everybody had a keeper tonight for sure. Well, that's good. And how's the water temperature? Uh, the wet draw, the wetsuit that leaked uh, is getting just about, if it leaks anymore, and the water's getting chilly. And you definitely want a hood now because the night, it was only still 67, but when it starts to blow wind and you're a little chilly, 
or wet. So it's starting to turn already. It's not that bath water stuff anymore. Yeah, they were talking about they 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 were saying a week or so ago that they thought the lake might hit a new record for being warm. But they said the way the weather goes, if you if they didn't hit it by whatever date that was, they said there was no chance because it starts getting cold here on out. Yeah. How, how was Viz? Uh, recovered much from the rain? I'll tell you that, that tonight was not a time to have anybody who is a newbie. Ah, okay. Uh, we're, we're in the shallows at knee deep. And when you go down, you're being dragged. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. John, we had the anchor on the boat. So John took a long cord out. was going to use that to just make a sweep because he wouldn't go anywhere. He started dragging the boat oh. <laughs> <laughs> with the anchor. Yeah. And he had a new, uh, he, need, uh, he had a real heavy anchor out there this time. So he decided maybe that's not maybe a good idea. Regular rain. Yeah. I don't think we ever went over six, seven feet uh, because as you started to go out to the center, it would grab you and start pulling your feet out. So you're out there with your spikes and grabbing rocks and pulling yourself back over to the, to the side. How was the, uh, was, was there any new patches exposed? We didn't go where we normally were going. <laughs> We went north of the first bridge. Okay. It's been a while since I've been up there. Last time I drove there, I found a safe off the bridge. Yes. So we went up that direction. Oh. And the current, have, it's really swept things sort of clean. And when you find one bottle half buried, you dig because there's bottles under it. Yeah. yeah the bottom is totally changed. Uh, so it, it's going to be good. So now if we just get a little dry spell for about two or three weeks, it'll be awesome. Oh, yes. Waiting for that first ice. Oh, very nice. Well, I did stop in the dive shop, and uh, Jim was able to help me out and get my hoses taken care of so I am ready to get back in the water. I do need to uh, uh, still fix an O-ring. And then when they get back from up north, which uh, might not be next Thursday, but the following Thursday, that we'll be able to hear about their Sheboygan ex, Kevin and Jim, who started the show. That's where they're at. I wish them best of luck on their diving as they move around. I know. What I hope they do is say what wreck they were on, how old is the wreck, how deep was it, how was the visibility, what was the temperature, and what was the best thing they liked about it. Yeah, I agree. Well, you certainly appreciate it, and you can see them on on, uh, the Mud Club, uh, mudclub.scubaobsessed.com. When they get, it might take them a, a week to get back before we can pull the information out, but we'll get stuff posted. And then we, when we have a dive club meeting next, the next dive club meeting, yeah, I do believe that's the twentieth, third Tuesday of the month. So I'm ready. I, I'm 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 coming out of. Uh, you'd think summer would be fun, but I just it's like being thrown in a blender. Summer. It's been an active week. I've had flying this week, jumping this week, diving this week. I'll be in Wisconsin Saturday. Oh, is that the the fair already? Yeah, uh, the rent fair. Yeah, that's the end of the season. So I want to go up and take pictures of the good-looking young ladies. Yes. I really enjoy that time. It's amazing pictures. We appreciate it. So are you ready for that time of the show? Ever ready. So here we go. The Farewell to Arms is an Ernest Hemingway novel about American soldier in Italy during World War One. He falls in love with a nurse in the hospital, decides to go AWOL, and rows all night with her in a boat from Italy to Switzerland to evade authorities. His girlfriend is still sitting in the stern of the boat when he's rowing in the middle and at one point says, Kath, I love you. She says, pardon? He said, I said, I love you. She still didn't hear him. So he removes the oar from the lock, moves to the stern, resumes steering the boat from that position and said, again, I love you. She said, I love you too, but why are you standing there sculling? We do much better rowing where you were. He said, you are undoubtedly right. I just sculled to say I love you. Appropriately titled. <laughs> so on that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe.
has been completed. Yeah, crickets. I think that's appropriate. 